Welcome to podcast 43. Yes, 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 maybe, but yes. Hello, welcome back to another episode of podcast 43. I'm your host, Chris Borg, and I'm joined with my other two hosts, Cody Workman and Fulton Collins. And we're here to discuss two very special films this week, like always. But what are these two films, Fulton? Um, these two films are La Jetée and the remake of that short film, 12 Monkeys. Cody, if you would like to give a, a short plot summary of, of them, go right ahead. They both kind of follow the same similar plot although there are some notable differences namely in like the settings of the films in terms of what year it is and what exactly is going on la jet i always call it jet but i think it's la jet is set in france it's a science fiction short film it's unique in that it is entirely structured out of still photographs so we'll kind of get into that a little bit later but really stands out when you watch the film but the story basically follows a man after the apocalypse in after, you know, like a World War III breaks out, is sent back in time to help prevent the apocalyptic event and kind of learn about this specific incident. And then along the way, you know, time travel just kind of kicks in and it gets kind of wild. It's kind of hard to explain all the beats of the story, even though it is a short film. And it especially gets harder to explain 12 Monkeys because it is the same sort of story where it's post-apocalyptic central characters sent back in time to gain information about the apocalypse but that film is set in the 90s and is about instead of world war three a virus which feels very relevant today Monkey um, and yeah no and oh, it, yeah. It, it is in, yeah. that is exactly because I, I watched the film just, i was just i could not stop thinking about that because there are so many monkeys in the movie the movie's called 12 monkeys it's about a virus that's going to wipe out humanity and we're you know reading about this in the news and what's interesting is when you watch the original film, which was made in the 60s, has this kind of, you know, threat of nuclear war, which at the time was at an all-time high, right? In the 1960s, you're talking like right around Bay of Pigs and it's pretty scary stuff. And that's kind of still relevant now with what's going on in the world. And we have the viruses to fear. So it, it, both films still, I think, ring pretty true, feel very relevant and are very, very engaging. I would definitely go on a limb and say that these are both of our strongest pairings of the film films that we've covered so far, because I really don't think I have much negative to say about either of them. I, I think that Marker's vision is realized quite well in his 62 original film. And what's interesting is I, I wanted to watch a little bit more Marker before I rewatched La Jete to just give him more respect. And this film really sticks out like a sore thumb in his filmography is the thing, because he relies so much on telling real stories of people or doing travelogue type filmmaking like Sans Soleil is about, you know exploring other cultures or I watched another one called Sunday in Peking which was basically just talking about the day-to-day -day lives of people after the uh, Civil War and so to watch something like this where he just crafts a narrative is quite interesting because it's probably his most famous film yet he never really did anything quite like it again. Again. 
And technique is is also distinctively his, like telling a story through still photographs with this narration that is very prominent in his other films. It's like he's trying to do narrative filmmaking in the only way that he can, but still holding on to some of those hallmarks of this more nonfiction, poetic documentary filmmaking mm. that he's doing. Yeah, I totally get that. And, and that's what's kind of interesting about La Jete when you when you watch it. There's such a realist feel to that movie and that these images are created and put together, uh, even though they are still images and the way that the montage kind of works and uh, one after another after another, it feels real and it does feel more like documentary filmmaking. And it, it it's very disturbing to me. I actually was, even though the story is very fictional and it is very, you know, involves time travel and ideas that we, you know, are, are not exactly logical. Whereas Terry Gilliam's version is almost from the get-go bonkers like he's he's right away kind of abandoning this idea that this is a possible reality or that this is something that's an imminent threat to society and is fully embracing the genre tropes of the story and this sort of almost melodramatic like romance that blossoms in the middle of the movie and this ridiculous like supporting performances it's a very interesting approach to a text that initially is so serious and so so disturbing and that it really does make you reflect on kind of the current state of the world and while i do think gilliam does get some of that there i think kind of that is a little bit accidental because we live in a post-COVID world, but it's a completely different feeling. It's a completely different tone that is set. And it's not just because he's using moving images and shooting it in a more quote unquote traditional sense. I think it is just, he is approaching pretty faithful adaptation of the story, completely different and finding, you know, really leaning into instead of the threat or the, for lack of a better word, nuance of the original text and just something that is far more thrilling and pretty bonkers, but really entertaining. And I think also equally fascinating for a variety of reasons. It's it's wild to compare these movies because they're just shot so differently, yet the stories are pretty much identical in many ways. There, there's a few differences because one film is almost two hours longer. But I don't know. I just, the more I've been thinking about these two films together, the more interesting it gets into like just seeing how each director goes in completely different directions. And that's not even just in the decisions in style, which Mark Chris Marker is like, you know, obviously from the get-go establishing himself as a very unique perspective and like filmmaking technique when it comes to telling the story, but just in the way that they're embracing the tones of these stories is so fascinating to me. I was going to say, um, just to kind of build off with what you were saying, I just think these two films are such incredible, like mood pieces. And I think especially with the first short film, I think if he was to shoot it like a traditional short film and not use still images, it would have kind of made it feel a little bit more like campy, like a little bit more like of a campy science fiction-y feel. Whereas by using still images, the viewer is kind of locked to an image at a time. So they can't really 
predict what's going to come next. And I think it's a great kind of way to make the viewer sympathize with our actual lead of the short film. I forget his name. It adds to the visual style of the film so well. It's really, really easy to get kind of lost as the main character is getting lost in his own perception of time, where he is in the story and what decade is he in or what year is he in. And then with 12 Monkeys, it does remind me a lot of the latter half of Brazil because I know Terry Gilliam's work a lot better than I know Chris Marker's work. So I have a little bit more reference points for Gilliam's stuff. I feel like the whole film of 12 Monkeys is just dialed up to like uh, 11. I really do like it for that. And I was talking to Chris about this. Uh, I know we've texted a little bit and I can't really explain it, but it's just kind of got like a French vibe to it. 12 Monkeys does. And it reminds me a lot of the city of lost children, which I know we covered ages ago. And from what I've seen from Delicatessen, it also reminds me of that. But I think it's like not only the way 12 Monkeys is shot, it reminds me a lot of those films, but also down to the score. Like there's this weird accordion that comes in at different <laughs> times and it really makes it into like this really bizarre, hyper realistic, but hyper fantasy mix. And I think it's a really, really interesting take for Gilliam to go in that direction because I think it would ultimately be impossible to remake the original short film if he wasn't to use like still images. Like I think Gilliam did the best at what he could with his own like sensibilities. Since you mentioned two films by Jean-Pierre Jeunet mm -hmm. Fulton, I actually wanted to bring up Cody has seen the new Jeunet film that he put out on Netflix, Big Bug. And mm -hmm. I was wondering if Cody saw any uh, similarities between this. absolutely and yeah first of all, i thought big bug was just awesome there's a really really imaginative piece that's out on netflix you should go see it i don't know why no one's talking about it really really interesting film and there is some similarities there in terms of the sort of quirkiness and campiness feel to the filmmaking approach there's also a really interesting thriller kind of element in big bug that is very very prominent in 12 monkeys the one thing that i really was taken aback because i've seen 12 monkeys a few times now is just how strong the performances are and in especially with bruce willis and brad pitt like those those two especially i mean i think the whole cast is terrific but what bruce willis has to do as a leading man cannot be easy this is a a very complicated character and the first time when Bruce Willis goes back in time right and then is in that prison cell trying to get to the cell phone to warn the future it's a very convoluted crazy idea it is a really powerful sequence where he's you know really just almost out of his mind has no idea what's going on can't figure out what year it is and it's a side of Bruce Willis that I don't think we really get to see often I know Bruce Willis Willis has kind of always been criticized as a sort of stiff actor. I think this is one of his better performances. I think he gives a lot of nuance to the character. It actually did remind me of one of the characters in Big Bug. I cannot remember the actor's name, but I had not made that connection, Chris, until you brought that up. But there, there is an interesting element there, both very futuristic, both also about a virus in some ways. Very, very interesting to make that comparison. But I was really taken aback, though, by the performances here. I would say the performances here are certainly stronger than in something like Big Bug. Not to say that they're bad in Big Bug, but they're really, really excellent in 12 Monkeys. And it's interesting because when you watch Marker's film,
film, you know, not that there aren't performances, there are still actors being photographed, but it's a very different type of performance. And you don't notice the actors in the same way you're going to notice the actors in 12 Monkeys. And then you're really going to notice the actors in 12 Monkeys because they're, you know, Brad Pitt and Bruce Willis, like some of the biggest stars ever. And they're doing performances like nothing we've ever seen from them. So, so yeah, just in such an animated fashion. And I think also like we talked about how Marker's film has this realism attached to it through the still photographs that he uses, where I feel like 12 Monkeys is so yeah detached from reality and the, the use of sound stages especially i love it but it's very much just completely different like when when he goes back to uh the trenches in world war one oh my god and it's like you it's you're a like sequence you're like i i know that it's it doesn't look like they're actually in a war zone you can clearly tell that it's a sound stage but it's all just in that that gilliam wheelhouse he loves like big ridiculous sets i mean like that's what the fisher king is too like it's just like all this like crazy yeah, stuff just going amazing uh, or like yeah, going back to like Time Bandits or, or yeah, yeah, any or number of his films like he's, Baron Munchausen. Yeah, like yeah, literally anything that he's done. Even <laughs> God, even uh, the Don man Quixote. who killed Don Quixote. <laughs> yeah, I mean he tries. He's just not able to hit the mark with that one. But you know, what did you guys think about such a, a blatant use of a red herring though? Because. Uh, for people that are unaware, the titular 12 monkeys, which are believed to be the reason why there is a virus that has been unleashed and killed, you know, a majority of the world's population. It actually turns out to not be that big of a deal. And then it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny. It's kind of goofy, but, it, you it, know, it's uh, th- that moment when they're in the cab and they see all the drafts on the um because eventually what the 12 monkeys do is they release all these animals from because they're an animal rights group. They release a bunch of animals from a zoo. But if you think about it, the 12 monkeys are somewhat responsible in that because, they yeah, they kidnap the doctor who plays Christopher Plummer, who's yeah. Brad Pitt's father, who is the inventor of the virus or in charge of the research for the virus. And he's the one who put special actions in place to prevent his son from getting the virus to spread to everyone little did he know that it was you know the assistant the whole time we get a lot more of this specific story than we kind of do in the original film about it, it, <laughs> this is such a weird analogy i don't know why this came to my head you guys know that uh song copacabana that yeah. barry manilow song and it's like but just who shot who at the copa you know it's like that sort of thing but it's like but who pressed what at the world war three you know and like legenda i was like we we kind of know why the war started it's not established quite to the lengths that 12 monkeys goes to as to what the mission is the missions that he has to do over and over again the conspiracy and the 12 monkeys and then how the 12 monkeys are actually connected to the inciting event even though they do end up being kind of a red herring but not really if you think about it long enough it's a pretty interesting movie i mean i do think gilliam and the screenwriters really you know took that story and made it into something that is, you know, noticeably different, even though it does follow a lot of the same beats. That is true. I didn't I didn't consider, yeah, that like the 12 monkeys were responsible, not in the way that it was believed, but they still were led to pretty much the destruction of the human race. Uh. Yeah, it, it, it's like they are 
on it because like you know obviously the future humans are focusing way too much time on <laughs> on the 12 on yeah. the 12 monkeys and there's no reason for that it'd be like in the future if they're like we need you to track down the weather underground we need to f- what, what are they about like it's like <laughs> right yeah <laughs> but they're like the weather underground but like goofy because like when they're talking to the animal rights activists they're like yeah they the the 12 monkeys they became too radical they did things like unleash a bunch of snakes on the Senate floor. <laughs> they have the picture. Yeah. Uh, I oh love that. God. I love that whole sequence. It was actually a, a couple that adapted this film, 12 Monkeys, really? that adapted La Jete, Janet and David Peoples. This is like the only script that they wrote, which is really that's, weird. That's kind of hell unfortunate, of to be honest. Yeah. I mean, really a hell of a script. I, I was unaware of the screenwriting process. With them, but that's awesome. I was also going to say, I don't know why I got hooked on this. It's such a minor thing, but I do really love like Gilliam's sense for like all the small little details. And they really do you add up in this film but for like the first five minutes of brad pitt being on screen i was like how the fuck is he doing that with his eye he's got like uh, one eye that's i'm assuming they put a um, contact a contact in but he has like one eye that's slightly smaller than the other eye and it gives him that crazy like looney tunes kind of look yeah <laughs> and it, it works so perfectly because then you know i think through a good bit through the mental hospital sequence they'll like cut back to cartoon cartoons a lot and you'll just hear like these zany like cartoon sound effects that like hollow or sorry echo out through all the halls i just think it's such a great little yeah. inclusion of sound design to kind of add to that like out of this world type of feeling that the film kind of evokes he's like they make you buy toilet paper <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing like, about germs. Oh my god. Yeah, the it's whole great. thing about his whole spiel about germs and how they were just made up by some scientists in the 1800s to sell soap, but kind of doing oh. it in this like, but I'm just asking questions type way where he doesn't like fully commit to. He's like, well, some guy told me he didn't believe in germs. And like, come on, think about it. One thing I was gonna say that because you were talking about the cartoons in that scene, and then and one thing that's really interesting in 12 monkeys that you don't get really at all in the first film is the cinematic references that you you're going to get here where we're going to see the Marx Brothers monkey business, right? Which is like, even he just, <laughs> Brad Pitt even said that was a fun little point, inclusion. Right? <laughs> which is a great indicator of just kind of like how ridiculous some of the tone for the movie is. But then there's a really extended sequence that takes place in a movie house with, um, he grabs Madeline Stokes. He, who's he this ha- psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Who like he holds hostage and she doesn't believe him at first, but she feels like drawn to him. And it's because of all the time travel that has happened and she can like kind of remember. And so he makes her drive him to Philadelphia from Baltimore and they get to this area and he's seeing all the 12 monkeys spray paint markers and they eventually find this little corridor near like a homeless encampment and uh, they walk through and it's like these two bandits are beating up Brad Pitt and beating up Madeline Stowe's character. Yeah. Oh, that's some of those sequences are just like 
just incredible. I mean, the photography in both are fantastic, but I really do love the way Gilliam captures yeah. like the apocalyptic, snowy, kind of worn down buildings that Bruce Willis is traveling through. And then you get to see those like recreated back in the 90s. The latter half of the film, I think, is a great little touch. I thought the themes of this film, well, at least David Morse's character as Dr. Peters, who is actually the person that releases the virus into the world at the end of the mm -hmm. film or who they discover to be the, the culprit. He has this belief that humans' destruction of the environment is like, they're going to kill the environment. We need to do everything in our power to save the environment because of like endless consumption, hyper-capitalism. And he's like very much like an eco-fascist, I guess. Yeah. And, and I thought that was interesting because me and Fulton coincidentally watched the Steven Seagal film, written and directed Steven Seagal film yesterday on Deadly Ground, where Steven Seagal gives this giant speech at the end about like the endless corporate greed and how like we need to do everything in our power to protect the environment. And that is his final speech at the end of the movie after he goes on a rampage and murders people in cold blood that were just innocent workers just, just on an working. oil rig. <laughs> I don't know. I it connected something there. Maybe twelve. Maybe the the two people that were the peoples, David and Janet Peoples, adapting uh, Twelve Monkeys. Maybe they watched on dangerous ground, on deadly ground, not on dangerous ground. They were like, we have to retaliate. They're they're like yeah. they're like we need we need to we need to write a character that's just well good because he has a ponytail. Yeah, he's got the long hair. <laughs> he's the got end. the he's got the he long does. hair and a ponytail like Steven Seagal. I rest my case. Yeah. I, uh, that would be fascinating if it was, although I, I doubt the likelihood. But again, wild, wild story if it was yeah. true. <laughs> I had not Sorry. considered the environmental angle really for this movie. It is odd because the movie is like, also I'm a little confused as to why they have to live underground, but the animals can live above ground. Wouldn't radiation affect lions and tigers and bears? I kind of just took that as like mother nature kind Although of pushing I also, back. I also had an idea that I was thinking, I was like, so if only 1% of the population is left, that means that there's like way more lions and bears and tigers than there are humans, right? Oh so maybe they have to live underground because they're no longer at the top of the food chain, even though mm. they might have the technology or whatever, there's just so few of them. The one thing I do kind of wish that we got a little bit more from 12 Monkeys is what the world looks like underground because it looks like we only get to see that prison that yeah. Bruce Willis is in because he's a convict in the future. I believe they mentioned his crimes maybe once or twice. I'm, I was still a little like, he doesn't seem like a very bad guy from the get-go, although you do get a couple of moments during the kidnapping where you're like, oh my gosh, like this guy is, he's and he's not, a, he's not afraid to kill people either. I mean, although, she has to beg him in the bathroom when, when he takes that pimp to the bathroom. Oh, that whole sequence is insane when they're at the brothel and the that was nuts i think the the most violent scene is when the two criminals that they run into in the auditorium who attempt to assault the psychiatrists and then he 
throws one through a wall and ends up killing them both. Like that, that was really uh, literally stomps a dude's head that, in. That was, I was like, okay, American history X. Like this is, <laughs> this is, this is violent. Oh gosh. I lost my train of thought there, but you were saying you wanted to see more of what. The oh yes. Of just, you know, yeah. like, like what does this world look like besides the prison and the panel of scientists? We don't really get to see enough of that. We get to see some of what, the outside world looks like but what does humanity look like and somehow they're all speaking english so i'm I'm glad that you asked that question cody because what if i told you that there is a 47 episode television series that aired on sci-fi in the last decade that expands upon the universe of 12 monkeys wow so it's does it take it, place like during the virus spread or like I believe is it a it remake? Is, I believe it takes place after. No, it's it's yeah, it's, I don't think I think it's like a continuation. It's a like continuation. Wow. Do you think I, the Bruce Willis character is he in the show as his own character? Yes. Yeah, no, it's Bruce Willis and Dr. Cassandra uh rally the so James Cole and Cassandra rally. James Cole and Dr. Rally, okay. So they, it follows them, not the actors, right? They, they got different actors. Yeah, different. Yeah. I did, yeah, they didn't get. It's sci-fi. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think. I mean, Bruce Willis and in his uh recent career i know that he's uh retired from acting due to his unfortunate Illness, diagnosis yeah. with a brain condition memory loss yeah some, some memory horrible. loss yeah. yeah i know that he's picked some real uh flops that go straight to red box but i don't think he would even sign on to a sci-fi yeah, tv don't. series i don't know but, but that yeah, sounds it, interesting. I might have to check that out. I'd be, I mean, because the movie kind of left me thinking. I would like to know more about this world. And I'm assuming the movie hints that they're going to figure out the cure for the virus. I think, yeah. It, it and is so, that, I mean, that's how the movie ends. It, it, I mean, it ends like the same way as La Chate, where like it is like a beautiful reenactment almost of the um, slow motion of the, the murder that the child watches, which turns out to be his future death is just i mean the layers of that are just incredible but i mean i think it's pretty obvious in 12 monkeys that it ends with they're gonna find the cure and humanity's gonna come back up from the underground it's a lot less french of an ending for sure oh for yeah. sure for sure yeah no the the way that i was when you finished that first film you're just like oh my gosh oh, it's so it's so beautiful though the way that they just describe this relationship in la Chate. It's just like a flash before this man's eyes of just experiencing all those emotions and then just having that all taken away from him at the yeah. end i think that's the one thing that la Jete La Jete explores a different side of this time travel concept that 12 Monkeys really doesn't because La Jete is, is a lot more of an emotional film. And I really appreciate that. I think just like that's still whenever I see like La Jete mentioned, it's always a still of the him touching the woman's face. And it's just like, I don't know, yeah. it's just a really beautiful composition too. I, I would disagree with you slightly, but I do think in 12 Monkeys, we do get a 
little bit of emotion into his sort of dream that he keeps having, which the original protagonist in Ojete also has, of watching the man die in the airport. And this sort of haunting of who is this mysterious woman, and then eventually finding the woman, and then eventually falling in love with the woman. And the way that their relationship, it's not rushed at all, really, in 12 Monkeys. It's We, we notice the chemistry kind of early on, but it's not forced. It takes a long time. It's really creepy for a while when he's the kidnapper. I mean, you're there are some sequences that you think are going to go very wrong, especially given the supposed criminal nature of Bruce Willis's character. But it does end up becoming this sort of sweet romance. And the more she starts to uncover the conspiracy, the more he starts to kind of bond. And then the, the their final moment when he comes back from the future for like, I think it's the fourth time, that whole bit where she's trying to explain to him that he's not crazy, I found deeply, deeply moving. And it is a different type of emo- emotional exploration. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite lean into all these different feelings that, that the protagonist's character is feeling in such a short span of time and then what that all means to have you as a young boy watch yourself die. I mean, it's also just, I mean, like the idea of just having a character who has somehow seen themselves die and is haunted by that their whole life and doesn't realize until the moment they're dying that they saw themselves die as a child is genius. I mean, it's it's a really great idea and I think it does, uh, I think it's executed beautifully I really do like that concept as well as the final shot of how the child that will grow up to be Bruce Willis's character, his eyes as he lingers on himself getting shot. But I do have to say that my issue is that the relationship between Bruce Willis and Madeline Stowe's character falling in love it still feels very hollywood and and i and i don't want to say that that's like a bad thing because i think that we're watching a movie and it is a movie and i think that we need to be we can being aware of that isn't isn't a sin you know but it's just different from like that raw emotion that i feel in the first film and like from like for comparison's sake I, I don't think it's as strong but i still think it is yeah i would agree with that i yeah. was gonna say like cody i do agree when she's trying to reassure him that he's not crazy in that scene that you brought up i do find that to be a moving scene i just wish i kind of felt the believability of them being a couple a little bit sooner because i really don't feel like i feel like they could actually be a couple till that last third till the idea of them spending the last few days together on a beach as a couple i think that's a very nice like little gesture that and the, that yeah, was the rooted that... <laughs> you know yeah. far back behind earlier in the film yeah with the key west uh destination one thing that i had thought about um have you all seen looper yes yeah that uh, no i haven't seen looper actually i i mean this is <laughs> it's almost like watching this movie again i i hadn't seen i haven't seen looper in a number of years but i, I have not first, seen it since it came out this is this is the first time i've seen 12 monkeys since seeing looper and there is a shocking amount of similarities not that i mean it would make sense given that bruce Willis is in both and i'm sure johnson is a huge fan the whole sort of like time traveling science fiction future apocalypse genre I think does owe 
quite a bit to these two movies. I, I You do kind of see this sort of bonkers, like, wait, time works like what? And this is, huh? And you got to what? But then you just, you, you, you kind of just go with it. You surrender yourself to it because the movie's so entertaining. I'm thinking of like Tenet from a couple mm. of years ago, which, which is an extreme example. Um, I was going to say the concept of Looper, isn't it? That he has to, he sent people that he just has to kill unassumingly and he gets himself, right? Correct. Like, isn't that like, the, that's like the yeah, main he's, con- and uh, then they, the The Looper, a Looper is someone who they illegally use time travel to kill someone in the past. Gotcha. And then eventually the older version of one of the Loopers who's uh, played by Bruce Willis is sent back in time to kill his younger self, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Mm-hmm. And that kind of concept is... Is very reminiscent of this. Very movie. reminiscent yeah. of 12 Monkeys and, you know, this idea of the young self having to, or the old self having to kill the young self, which is also the young self watching the old self die. I mean, it, it, it's very, <laughs> it's very, very interesting. And it is, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, Ryan Johnson was, you know, watching 12 Monkeys when he was writing that screenplay. Or even uh, Donnie Darko, you know, he has to die to let the universe be perfectly in sync again because he was destined to die yeah i i get what you're saying and i think what we need to do is we need to type up a a little petition and we need to give the estate of chris marker royalties for every single time travel movie exactly somebody going back in time to kill someone to kill someone or just where they end up running into their old self (laughs) it all started here can you think of an earlier time travel movie that that is as complex as legit i can't i can't think of a movie that explores the concept of time time traveling before 1962 with as much like nuance and thought put into it where it's so like the the boy watches himself in the future die and is haunted by it throughout his entire life until the moment he realizes that he was the person who like that sort of galaxy brain concept i don't think had ever been not that i can think of in terms of time travel movies well i was gonna say it's a wonderful life kind of kind of there Mm -hmm. was a similar like i wish i had never been born yeah that would be probably the the best example of that but besides that i can't and that's not really time travel that's just the idea of if i never existed which is i guess in some way it's similar but i mean like i mean i think you're probably you're probably right i think people might be under i mean because we don't really think of marker as a genre filmmaker but that movie i think that you know from 62 really has a lot more influence than i think people might be willing to admit i was just gonna say i do kind of like how 12 monkeys avoids the simplicity of just it having to kill one person like the objective is a little bit more abstract than that because they all he has to do is relay information and i, and I kind of like how that every time he relays information it his past becomes even more complex and distorted yeah. than it was before so and i do like how it there's an extra layer there and it's brilliant just how like he is actually so crucial to how the world is destroyed <laughs> it's it's really amazing how just you know like the more his character interferes the more we see how his actions directly affect the you know end of the world it's really <laughs> really 
interesting. And I mean, like, you also think of something like Back to the Future, like another big time travel movie, which has somewhat similar ideas about how, you know, you go into the past and that's going to affect, you know, it's like the present's always going to be the same and anything you do in the past will always, like, you know, I guess, like, make some sort of sense in the future. I, I can't think of a better way to articulate that. But then also it's like the same concept from Legente in so many ways that I'm like, I can't get over just how influential Marker's film is. About um, the, the end of La Jete, where it's like he gets shot and then immediately some guy next to him whispers in his ear, also, you just fell in love with your mom. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that just happened. It's 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 wild. Zemeckis was watching it and was like, "Oh wow, I kind of, <laughs> I've got an idea. I've got to get it down quick." Do we have any kind of final finishing thoughts on on either film? I don't have any final finishing thoughts. I don't believe. Mm-hmm. So I guess now we're down to, did we have a preference between the original or the remake? I know this one's <sighs> very difficult, but I also find it funny because it's a little bit like last episode in terms of how faithful each film is to the other. Yeah, it is. It is shockingly very similar yeah. to the taxi films. I mean, while there are major differences, namely, you know, the different settings and cities and time periods, they go through <laughs> a shockingly number the same number of beats which is so insane because the first film's 28 minutes and the second mm-hmm. film is two hours and nine minutes so it's it's nearly you know quadruple quadruple even more than more than quadruple so. i think i prefer 12 monkeys just slightly i think i prefer la Jete. I think that it's just so compact and it's beautiful in in what it does in that short period of time and what it establishes through such an interesting use of film style to just complete just still images and how it kind of explores a timeline of emotions in such a brief period of time, I think is unmatched. But 12 Monkeys is also great. So it's not like it was it was hard. Mm -hmm. I I thought it was going to be easier than it was. actually. I'll be honest, I'm pretty stumped because I think both execute respectively what they're what either of them are trying to do. So I'm I really don't know. Folden's voting libertarian. He's like a third party. It's just like really not since our first episode with with Four Brothers, where it's like you've seen someone do a remake just so well. Like they saw the original text and knew how to make it their own and make it worth existing in a way that I think is very compelling. I mean, I really love Taxi from last week, but that I felt was more accidental. (laughs) It is just it's so hard to compare. I, I I feel that Fulton I just I'm leaning slightly towards 12 monkeys because I'm just impressed I'm so impressed someone could watch that original film and churn out something as wild as 12 monkeys it's so just good as that so that's really the only reason why that gets a slight edge which is maybe slightly unfair to Chris Marker but it's just so good well without further ado Chris did you want to announce what our next films will be yes Uh, well next week we will be covering Jean-Pierre Melville Le Samurai from 1967 and its remake, Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai from 1999, directed by Jim Jarmusch. So these will be a fun pair of films to discuss. (laughs) Another French film and its American counterpart, but I can only imagine uh, what we'll be talking about. Uh, Hopefully there will be plenty of Wu-Tang discussion too. 
Uh, I was going to say this one might be difficult, much like this one in terms of which one, you know, we might lean more towards, but did we want to do predictions for that one? Oh, that is tough because I've I've actually seen both of these movies, but it's been been so long. Oh, man. I'm going to go with the original for this one because I I have a poster of Les Samurai in my house. So I feel like I have to owe it at least the prediction (laughs) that I'd like it more. I'm gonna say Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, and I just think the cast alone is steering me in that direction. I love Riza and Jim Jarmusch vehicles too. Uh, he's great in Coffee and Cigarettes. Um, oh, he's great in The Dead Don't Die too. Oh yeah, he he play, he, he's part of a uh, what do they call him? The he works for the Wu PS, the WPS, <laughs> which is awesome. And he was great in Minions this year. That's true. Um, my my prediction uh i'm I'm probably gonna say ghost dog as well i have not seen either film both look extremely up my alley though so i could easily switch either way so we will see well on that note i guess we'll see you guys next week stay wavy stay safe keep on keeping on 